Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. So this series... We entitled Dear God for a reason. We thought about if you had uh, an opportunity to write God the most heartfelt personal letter on the things we struggle with, what would those things look like? And let's face it, there are people with questions, very challenging questions. And if we've walked out our Christian faith for any degree of time, we've had those questions as well, and we've faced those questions from others. And so we wanted to have some conversations on those. And we started last week with a good friend of ours, Abdu Murray, that came in and talked about, Dear God, why aren't you more obvious? And he helped us kind of walk through that. Today, the question is, Dear God, why is there evil in suffering? Not an easy subject. And so we bring in the best for these kind of things. And so joining us today is somebody who has been a friend of the Rock Point community for no short period of time. In fact, just in the last month or so, she was out here in April for um, the, the ladies' retreat through the Oasis Women's Ministry. She's back here again. At this point, we're thinking about just adopting her fully. We're going to have her move in and uh, just put up a, we're going to put a cop for you in the front office if that, no. Would you please welcome me, welcome with me, Alicia Wood. I love how they're like, um, we want to adopt you and put a cot here for you. And by the way, we need someone to speak on evil and suffering. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I was like, oh, so I am so sorry, guys, that this is going to be, this is a tough topic, right? As it would be expected to be. Um, but it's always nice to be together with family and with friends. And women, we had a good time at the retreat last month. Oh my goodness, it was wonderful to have that opportunity to spend time with the ladies and just to hear, um, just get to know them a little bit better. And so we had a great time and I spoke on, um, the whole theme was kind of this gardening kind of theme. And uh, I take a very literal sense then, the fact that I love gardening, growing things, tomatoes and peppers and kale and all these kind of things. And I also think it's just beautiful that God created us in a garden. Like it wasn't a mistake. He actually created us in a garden. And so I got to share a little bit about some of that as well. Um, and at the end, the woman who's playing piano, I don't know who she is. Maybe she's here, but she's saying, um, this is my father's world. This is our father's world. And it was just beautiful. So it was just a wonderful time to be able to spend with the ladies and get to talk with you. And so I get to see some of you again. Thank you so much for welcoming me as we deal with this really challenging topic of evil and suffering. And, you know, whenever I speak on this topic, it's one of those things where you know that somebody in the audience is hurting in some way. We live in a world where there's school shootings and there's um, cancer and there's wars and there's just tension. It seems like we're hurting. There's marriages that break up. There's children that don't do what we wanted them to do. There's just everything and it seems like it doesn't end. 
And I remember one time I was asked this question on suffering while I was speaking in Boston. And the young woman who asked me that question as I was answering it was just tears streaming down her face the whole time. Because she either was going through something or knew somebody who was, or just the fact that this topic is tough. And so I'm gonna kind of look at it through two different approaches, kind of just to kind of engage with the topic and the thought itself. And trying to understand, God, why would you allow this evil and suffering to be here? Why would this be a part of what you have in this world that we live in? And so a lot of that is gonna be a little more heady. And it may seem really insensitive to somebody who's going through something right now. So if that's you, I just encourage you to hang with me. I will get to something that is going to be much more personal. But we have to engage with our mind with this topic as well. Because for so many people, it's hard for us to reconcile a God being good and all-powerful that can stop suffering. And yet it exists. And yet he doesn't. And yet it hurts. Keep in mind... The suffering that we experience is only what God has allowed. We have no idea what he has stopped. We have no idea what he's prevented. We only see the things that God does allow to happen and to come through. So with that said, I need to put a really important disclaimer in there. There is a I'm not going to leave you walking out of here feeling like, you know what? The next time somebody has cancer, it's not going to bother me at all. I heard Alicia speak on it. I'm good. <laughs> I am not going to do that. In fact, I don't want you to ever get an answer from somebody for this question that makes you no longer hurt. It needs to hurt. Yep. It should hurt. And when you see a child that's starving, when you hear of a horrible situation, when you're going through something, I want the tears, I want the pain. I don't want us to ever become desensitized to this question of suffering. And so my goal today is, to not, is, to, is not to make this somehow be, a, be an experience where it doesn't bother you or you're just like, eh, whatever. I don't ever want to do that to you because I think it grieves God and it should grieve you. So whether you are... A Christian, whether you are not a Christian, philosopher, whatever you are, every person over the course of human history has had to deal with this subject in some way. And depending on your worldview or the belief that you come from, you're going to deal with it in different ways. So some people might say, well, suffering and evil exist because it's necessary for a greater good. Some might say, well, it's God's will. And if you're a Muslim, that's kind of the approach that you, you would take, um, as well as some other uh, Christians would even take that particular view. But um, saying it's, it's, it's Islam or Muslims would never question God when suffering happens. They will grieve over it, but they're not going to question, why did you do this? They wouldn't do that. It's what God's plan is, and we accept it. Some people might say, well, it's poor life decisions that you've made. It's bad luck. If you're a Hindu, you'll say suffering is the result of evil actions in a previous life. So you are a really bad person in your previous life. You've reincarnated into this life. And so now you deserve what's coming to you, essentially. It's somebody else's problem. Life is suffering. Buddhists just say, look, if you just get rid of desires, <laughs> the desire for these certain things, then you won't be bothered. You won't be, you won't, the impact of the pain won't be there. And atheists have to answer it themselves. They say, look, this is how the world should be. Why do you think that the world should care, like the natural world and the natural law should care about your pain? They don't care about your pain. That's irrelevant to them. They're doing their own thing. 
And so the, an atheist might say, hey, you know what? This is just how the world should be. Don't let pain bother you in the sense of like, it shouldn't be any other way. Why do you have this assumption that it shouldn't be there? Why shouldn't it be there? Is kind of how the atheists would look at it. So there's a variety of different views. Some people wonder, is God punishing me? Well, that was really interestingly answered um, in Luke chapter 13 when the Tower of Siloam fell and people questioned Jesus, you know, what did they do or why did this happen? It's because of them, it's their fault. And he's like, no. Now there are definitely times when God does judgment and he does carry out judgment and punishment and consequence, absolutely. And sometimes it does involve death. If you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira, who lie, you see God deals with sin. And sometimes it does involve death. But death to a God who is the originator of life is very different than when we take life. So if I have like a little clay sculpture here that I'm working on and I can't quite get it right, so I mash it up and I try it again, and I do this several times because I can't quite get it the way I want. And as I'm sitting there trying to think through what do I want to do with it, one of you walk over and take your fist and just mash it. Somebody's going to look at you and be like, why did you do that to her? That wasn't hers. And they said, well, she mashed it several times. And it's like, yeah, but it's hers. She can do that because it belongs to her. It doesn't belong to you. Other people's lives don't belong to you. God is the originator of life. And so he, is, he can respond to life and death in a much different way than we can. And so there are times when God does carry out judgment and consequences. Look at Jesus. The judgment of the world was placed on him and he lost his life. So there definitely are times when that does happen. And so often when we're in these situations, our natural first instinct, whenever we're going through any kind of painful thing, is to say, God, why? Why? We want to know because we think, if I just know why, man, that's going to make everything so much better. Well, about 10 years ago now, there was a young lady that I was uh, speaking to in England. She was about 16 years old. She came to me and she was trying to sort through this whole Christianity thing. And she said, Alicia, I just have a question for you. My father was an alcoholic. We tried so hard to help him, get him treatment, get him this thing, get him that. And he still died. Why did God let my father die? And in that moment, unless I get some massive download from God, I don't know. Right? I can't speak specifically to her situation. I can speak in a general sense, but I can't speak specifically to her situation. But let's just say I did. Let's just say God told me, Alicia, this is why I allowed that to happen. I want you to tell her right now. Okay. So he gives me the download. I look at her and I say, guess what? God has told me why. You've been wanting to know why. God has told me why. And I'm going to tell you. You ready? God allowed your father to drink himself to death because your father never wanted children. And when you and your brother were born, he didn't know what to do with you guys. So he started drinking. <laughs> now you know your why. I know now you can live in peace. Now you know the answer. Does the why really going to make her feel better? No. In fact, guys, I think that's one of the reasons God withholds the why from us so often. 
We in our minds think that if I just know why, then this won't hurt anymore. And I actually think that us knowing why could make this situation worse. And as a protection, God withholds the why from us. Not always, but there are times when he does. So that we actually don't have a worse situation we find ourselves in. So the why doesn't always make things better. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why God withholds the why from us in our particular situation. In a general sense, we know why there's evil and suffering in the world. As Christians, we know that in order for love to be real, in order for relationship to be real, somebody has to choose to not want to be in it or to be in it. Many people say, well, why did God create? And it's, look, he didn't create because he was looking, he was bored, for example, or he needed somebody to talk to. With the Trinity, God had somebody to talk to and communicate with in a relationship before he created us. So him creating us wasn't because he needed something. That would be an issue with the character of God that somehow he was lacking before he created us. He created us that we could experience him. So we could be in relationship with him, which is why when he created us and put us in a garden, he was there. His idea was always that he was going to be close. And that's why in the future, God is also there. And this idea of new heavens and new earth, he's also there. So the point is God creates us for this relationship. But here's the thing, in order for relationship to be genuine with Adam and Eve, he knew he had to put a way for them to not be in relationship. And so he puts this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that garden. So as long as Adam and Eve were choosing to not eat from that tree, guess what? They, God knew, they knew their relationship with God was genuine. Because they were choosing to love. They were choosing this option. If that tree wasn't there, then essentially it was a forced love because they couldn't choose any other way. Imagine if I brought a couple up here who've been in their mid-80s and They've been married for, let's say, 60 years or so. And I say to the man, you've been married a long time to this woman. Why her? And he says to me, well, Alicia, she was the only girl in town. <laughs> How is that going to make her feel? But what if he says, you know, Alicia, I went to this party, and there were so many different people there. And I sat down and started talking to her. And I just started to realize, wow, she's special. Wow, she's different. Wow, she's unique. And I said, I want to be with her. Now how does that make her feel? He had other options, but he chose her. And so the reality is, for love and relationship to be genuine, you have to have the ability to not love. And as a result, people choose to not love. And they choose to do a whole bunch of horrific, evil things to other people with that choice, that same choice that they could use to take their arms and embrace a crying child. They use it to hurt somebody else. And as a result, we live in a world where all of creation, as the Bible tells us, groans under the fall. It's all broken. It's all not the way it's supposed to be. And so the why that God protects us from sometimes, which can lead us to further pain, is something for us to remember the next time we're going through, that maybe why, asking why, isn't 
necessarily going to give us the answer or give us the healing we're looking for. But also, maybe God isn't telling us the why because he knows that we wouldn't even understand. I don't know how many of you have small kids, but trying to explain to them that a vaccine, which is about to, this needle is about to be shot into their arm is good for them, seems really counterintuitive when you're four. Right? Because you're just like, this is crazy. And no matter how much you try and explain it to them, they're going to cry or they're going to get upset or whatever it might be. Sometimes we just can't fully understand so our physical suffering, our physical pain that we go through, even in our bodies, disease and all of these things, lead us to ask why, lead us to try and understand, why do I have to feel this level of pain? Dr. Paul Brand was a leprosy doctor. Um, many of you may not be aware that leprosy is still around to this day. It's one of the oldest infectious diseases. And in places like India which is where Dr. Paul Brand served, um, there are many people that still struggle with leprosy. And he, he writes in a beautiful, a beautiful book that he wrote with Philip Yancey, I think it's called in, in His Image and In His Likeness, something like that, um, about some of his stories and some of his experiences in India. And one of the things he explains is, just so that you understand about leprosy, leprosy is a bacterial infection that damages your nerves in the skin, in your limbs, in your face, in your mucous membrane. So essentially, essentially what happens is you lose the ability to feel. You're, you're, you start to go numb. Your nerves can no longer, your pain cells can no longer communicate to your brain because they're destroyed that something hurts or that something's wrong. And so when you start walking, and you're walking heel toe, heel toe, and you're going on a hike, after a while, what you're, what those pain sensors in your feet communicate to your brain, okay, there's too much heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, and it, your brain automatically starts to shift your balance of your foot, so you're not walking heel toe anymore. By the end of the hike, you're walking like with your feet fully together to, to disperse the pressure around. So your body does this stuff automatically. You don't think about it. It does it automatically. But if you're somebody with leprosy, when you're walking heel-toe, heel-toe, those pain sensors aren't working. They're not communicating to your brain, and you do damage to yourself because just by normal walking, your body never shifts to rebalance itself, and it causes detriment to your pain. He also shares a story of a young man named Sedan, and I want to read you a little bit of Sedan's story. He said, when Sedan first came to Valor, his feet had shrunk to half their normal length, and his fingers were shortened and paralyzed. This is due to the leprosy. It took us nearly two years of unflagging effort to stop the pattern of destruction in his feet. Meanwhile, we began reconstructing his hands, a finger at a time, attaching the most useful tendons to the most useful digits and restraining his mind to con or retraining his mind to control the new set of connections. In all, Sedan spent four years with me in rehabilitation at this leprosy hospital that he worked at, or clinic. He personified the soft-spoken, gentle Indian spirit. At last, he decided he should return home to his family in Madras for a trial weekend. He had come to us with badly ulcerated hands and feet, and now his hands were more flexible, and with a specially designed rocker-type shoe, he could walk without damage. I want to go back to where I was rejected before, he said, he said, he said this in reference to the cafes that had turned him away and the buses that had denied him service because he was a leper. He said, now that I'm not so deformed, 
I want to try my way in the great city of Madras. Before he left, we reviewed together all the dangers he might encounter. Since he had no warning system of pain, any sharp or hot object could harm him. But he learned how to care for himself in our hospital. On Saturday night, after an exuberant reunion dinner with his family, he went to his old room where he had not slept for four years. He lay down on the woven pallet on the floor and drifted off to sleep in great peace and contentment. At last, he was home, fully accepted once again. The next morning when he woke up and examined himself, as he'd been trained to do at the hospital, he recoiled in horror. Part of the back of his left index finger was mangled. He knew the carpet because he had seen many such injuries on other patients. Evidence was clear. Telltale drops of blood, marks in the dust, and of course, the decimated clump of tendon and flesh that had been so carefully reconstructed some months before. A rat had visited him during the night and gnawed his finger. Immediately he thought, what will Dr. Brand say? All that day he agonized. He considered coming back to Valor early, but finally decided he must keep his promise to stay the weekend. He looked all around in vain for a rat trap to protect him that last night at home, but the shops were closed for a festival. He concluded that he must stay awake to guard against further injury. All Sunday night, Sudan sat cross-legged on his pallet, his back against the wall, studying an accounting book by the light of a kerosene lantern. About four o'clock in the morning, the subject grew dull and his eyes felt heavy, and he could no longer fight off sleep. The book fell forward onto his knees, and his hand slid over to one side against the hot glass of the hurricane lamp. When Sedan awoke the next morning, he saw instantly that a large patch of skin had burned off the back of his right hand. He sat trembling in bed, despair growing like a tumor inside him, and stared at his two hands, one gnawed by a rat, the other melted down to the tendons. He'd learned the dangers and difficulties of leprosy. He'd taught them to others. Now he was devastated by the sight of his two damaged hands, and he thought, how can I face Dr. Brand, who worked so hard to fix these hands? Zidane returned to me and Valor that day with both hands swathed in bandages. When he met me and I began to unroll the bandages, he wept. I must confess that I wept with him. As he poured out his misery to me, he said, I feel as if I've lost all my freedom. And then a question that has stayed with me. Zidane said, how can I be free without pain? In a world that cries out so much to God to take away the pain. God, I can't deal with this pain. It hurts, God, it hurts. Sudan would look to God and say, God, please give me pain. Give me pain so I can feel what's happening to my body, can I, so I can feel the damage that is happening. Because pain at its core is just your body's way of communicating to you. It's your body's way of telling you something is wrong. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't pinch your finger. Protect yourself. Change the way you're walking. It's communicating to you something is wrong. And Sudan just begs to feel the pain that so many of us want to get rid of because he can't be free without it. Physical pain is a very tough thing. It hurts, it destroys, it messes with us mentally. 
And so we want, understandably, God to make it stop. But it seems like when we read the biblical text, he allows us to suffer. And I think in our culture, we don't do a very good job of teaching people how to live in pain. We're in a culture that medicates and medicates and medicates. Oh, you have a stomachache? Take this. You have a headache? Take this. We don't want people to feel pain. And so we do everything we can to make it go away. But God doesn't guarantee us that. And so there's three very important things that I think we need to look at that he wants us to remember in pain. Because while we've looked at some of these questions of why we're going through some of these things and why this pain and evil, thing, evil and suffering exists, I think the more important thing is for us to remember what God says in the midst of it all. These are some of the things I think he's telling us. Is number one, remember that I'm here. Sorry, remember who I am. Number two, remember that I am here. And number three, remember I am hope. Remember who I am. Remember I am here. And remember I am hope. I love the story of Job. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Job's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And one of the things I love about the story of Job is that God deals with the question of suffering and that God talks so amazingly about himself as a creator. You're familiar with the story of Job, that Job is a man who is doing great. Family, health, wealth, all of the things. Everything is great until everything goes away and everything is taken away. And his children are gone. His wealth is gone. His body is inflicted with sores. And his lovely friends come to him to try and help him by giving him all kinds of reasons as to why, what he did to bring it on, what God is punishing him for, all these different kinds of things. And God is quiet. Job is crying out to God. He's pleading to God. He never curses God. He wishes he had never been born, but he never curses God. And God is silent until chapter 38. When Job gets the audience with God that all of us who have ever suffered or ever gone through anything want. God, why? Answer me. And God does. And in chapter 38 through about 42, God responds to Job. And he talks with him in reference to what Job is going through. And I want to read you what God says. I'm paraphrasing several chapters here. Then the Lord answers Job, out of the whirlwind and says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Declare if you have understanding, who has determined its measurements if you know, or who has stretched the line upon it? To what are its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? <coughs> Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth and went out of the womb? When I made the cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and broke up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, this far you will come, but no further. Here your proud waves must stop. Can you tie the cords to the Pleiades or loosen the belt of the constellation Orion? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats produce offspring? Or can you observe when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bring forth? Will the, will the wild ox be willing to serve you or spend the night by your manger? Now, when you read this, you're kind of wondering, Lord, I think you misunderstood my question. Like, I'm asking you about 
why I'm suffering and going through the pain that I'm going through, and you're talking to me about wild oxes and the constellation Orion and waves. Job gets the audience with God. And what, the way God answers the question on suffering is he says to Job, you've forgotten who I am. Let me remind you, in your pain, which I'm not taking away right now, let me remind you who I am. And how does he do, how does he do that? He talks about himself as creator. Look around you, Job. You see those animals? I know how long that baby stayed in its mother's belly before she gave birth. I was there. I watched it. I saw it. You see those waves? I controlled where they went and how far they came. You see those constellations? Can you pull apart the stars of Orion? Because I certainly can. When you're in the midst of your pain, don't you forget who I am. Don't let the pain talk so loudly that you forget, Job. Look around you. Look at the waves. Look at the sunset. Look at the forestry. You have forgotten who I am. And what's fascinating to me is Job's response to chapter 42. He says, before my ears heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I see you again, God. God never answers Job why. It's not because God messed up. It's not because he forgot. It's because it's not what Job needed in the midst of his pain. And for Job to say, now I see you. And he says, I repent in dust and ashes. And essentially God blesses him with more things. Gets his children again. His wealth increases. His health is better. Job never got the answer to why in this big audience with God. And I don't think that that's a mistake. We don't need that. We need to remember who he is. Someone once told me that everything that happens to us passes through the hands of God first. I don't think God causes evil. I think that's a massive conflict with the character of God. How can God be good in his character, essence, and nature and cause evil things? But I do think that God allows them. In this time period, in this world, he allows them. And so my friend said to me, everything that happens to us passes through the hands of God first. That gives me a level of comfort because it lets me know it wasn't like an oversight on God's part or oops, I didn't see that one coming. Sorry, Alicia. It wasn't like that. He intentionally let it go through. That gives me that there's a bit of depth to this, that God is fully engaged. He's fully aware. He fully sees what is going on in my life. Secondly, so first, don't forget who I am. But the second thing is don't forget who I am because I am here. When a child falls and scrapes their knees, so let's say you're five years old and you fall off your bike, boom, as I did all the time. But I was a tomboy. I was like, oh, cool, I got to scrape. Like, I love that kind of thing, right? Um, so when I, you fall off your bike, what's the first thing you do? Mom, mom, mom. You scream for mom. Mom comes running. And in this moment, does she see you lying there and say, oh my goodness, let me tell you about why you fell off your bike and how gravity pulled you down at 9.8 meters per second squared and what your blood cells are doing and your white blood cells are doing and all these kind of things and how it's coagulating. And does she go through this explanation as to why, why you were going so fast and why you flipped over that rock? Does she do that? No. What does she do? She picks you up picks you up and holds you. And in so doing, your blood is getting on her, your tears and sweat and all that is getting on her at the same time. And in that moment, do you want mom to tell you why? 
Or do you just want mom to hold you? Do you just want her to give you a hug? And in so doing, you know if you've had little kids, just by holding them, it's like they start to feel better. They're still bleeding. It hasn't miraculously healed on the spot. But just the hug, that knowing mom is there to hold them in their pain, that comfort changes them. When somebody's going through suffering, as Christians, we need to walk alongside them, go through their pain with them, never let anybody suffer alone. But what if the person that's comforting somebody isn't just you or me? What if it was God himself? What if it is God who is there to comfort somebody in their pain? Many of you may be familiar with a woman named Corey Ten Boom. She was born in Amsterdam in 1892. She was a Dutch Christian and author of over 55 books. Her and her family became known for their role in hiding the Jews during World War II. They hid them in every crevice of their house. It's estimated that they saved the lives of about 800 Jews in their house. 800 Jews until their arrest on February 28, 1944. She was then sent to prison. So was her father and her sister. I believe her father and sister both died in the concentration camps or prisons that they were sent to. And they put her in solitary confinement for seven weeks. Seven weeks alone. That is not healthy. Seven weeks alone before she's allowed to step outside for the first time. And during that time, she talks of her physical, mental, and emotional pain, as well as the feeling of desolation, of loneliness that she experienced. And during that time, she wrote these words. Biscuits, a croquet, caramel. But why do I take no delight in these things? There was really no pleasure in nibbling at this or that dainty by myself. It occurred to me to offer some to the Wachmeisterin, but I let the impulse pass. I knew I should never in the future, was there to be a future? Eat dainties by myself. If ever I had anything good to eat, I should remember cell 384 and invite others to enjoy it with me. It was dark in my cell. I talked with my God. Never before had fellowship with him been so close. It was a joy I hoped would continue unchanged. I was a prisoner, and yet, how free. She, she remembers stories in the Bible where God was with people in pain. And she went on to write this. I was no longer alone. God was with me. With him, I could go on. And once more, I saw the blue sky, the flowers and shrubs, and I saw the garden as a part of a beautiful free world in which I too should someday be able to walk about. The earth is, in much the same way, a solitary prison garden, and heaven is the great free out of doors where fulfillment of joy awaits us, the children of God. If we notice, her comfort didn't come, and why? God, I was serving. I was saving lives. And this is what you let happen to me? Wasn't I serving you? Wasn't I doing good? Notice her comfort didn't come in getting the why answered. Her comfort came in knowing that he was there, that he was there with her in her pain. And that might be, because for whatever reason, guys, God has not decided to deal with suffering by waving a magic wand and making it all disappear. Perhaps in the face of suffering, words and explanations just aren't enough, and it's the presence and the comfort of him that helps us get through it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The Bible states that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, how is it that God can comfort us? Well, God leaves a world of pain and he enters a world of no pain, enters our world of pain. And so he knows what it's like to feel. He knows what it's like to hurt because he himself hurt. I love how Edward Shalito puts this. If we've never sought thee, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Someone once said to me, I may not know the reason for suffering, but I know that no other God has scars. And in Christianity, we have a God who came and got scars. He knows what it's like to hurt because he did it and entered into it himself. It's just like when our mom comes and picks us up and we're five years old and we fall off our bike and picks us up and just held us. Didn't give us a why, but she knew what it was like to feel that kind of pain because she herself has two scarred knees. She gets it. She knows exactly what it feels like. So we have, remember who he is. Remember who I am. Remember that I am here. Remember that I am hope. Finally, God offers us a hope. And without hope, it's even harder to walk through this life. But when we have a hope, a future, a future hope that one day this will all end, the pain, the suffering, the agony will all end, that does actually help us now. Why? Because a guarantee of something that is to come, remember, nothing that happens here can change the future that you have waiting you as a Christian. No war, no law, no presidential election, nothing can impact the future that a Christian has with God because nothing here can change that because what Jesus did on the cross is something in the past and you can't change history. So that's a guarantee, and that impacts how we live our life. Let me give you a quick example. When you get in the car, you know there's a chance that you might get hurt. So what do you do? You put on your seatbelt. At least that's what you're supposed to do. Put on your seatbelt. Well, what if I could guarantee you that if you got in that car, you would get in a serious car accident? Would you get in that car and put on your seatbelt, or would you not get in that car at all? In other words, the minute I guarantee something to you is the minute it overhauls your behavior, how you act, how you think, what you do. The possibility of getting in the car accident just meant put on your seatbelt. The guarantee meant don't get in the car at all. 
A guarantee of something changes how you live. And when the Bible talks about hope, it's not like, oh, I hope you come to my birthday party. I hope you can do this. The Bible talks about hope as a guarantee of the future. And that guarantee changes the way that we live our life here today. Listen to what is said in 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pain, evil, suffering, all this stuff brings us discouragement. It makes us sad. It makes us down. And what else is left for somebody to hold on to? when they feel so at the end of their strength, so worn out, so beat down from life, but to know that there's a promise that they will smile again, that the story is not over. We are in it, and it hurts. And when Jesus told us, in this world you have many tribulations, he meant it. Look what happened to him, his followers, most of them, 10 of the remaining 11, Christian tradition tells us, died for their faith. Christians were persecuted in the first several hundred years in excruciating ways and are still attacked to this day. When he said in this world you're going to have great tribulations, he wasn't lying, but he also said, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And that's not a lie either. He has overcome the world. In other words, he's saying it's going to stink now, but look to the future. Look to what I've overcome. Look to what is coming. And as Christians, we have something to look forward to because our relationship with Jesus guarantees us a relationship with God eternally. Where one day, we won't have to look at cancer patients. One day, we won't have marriages fall apart. One day, we won't see people do evil things in schools and in shopping malls and all kinds of situations. One day God will deal with it. The the delayment doesn't mean that he won't deal with it. But it is going to hurt now, guys. It is going to hurt. And that's part of this broken world that we're in. But know that unique to Christianity, we're the only major world religion that talks about a God who is willing to hurt with us. And so the end story is given to us in Revelation by John. And he reminds us as to what is coming our way. And let me read this final passage to you. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with God, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Neither shall there be any more sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have gone away. Then God said, look, I'm making all things new, right, for these words are faithful and true. Revelation 21. Remember who I am. Remember that I'm here. Remember that I am hope. Well, it doesn't mean that the pain and the suffering will not end. Well, it doesn't mean that we won't still lose people that we love. Well, it doesn't mean that there's going to be the end to, to the evil that we see. It does mean that this is not the end of the story. The loss of life and the pain is still part of the book. But it will conclude, and I guarantee you, it will be a happy ending. When you're dealing with a subject this complex, you got to have somebody whose heart is in tune with God to deal with it in the right way. Can we thank Alicia for what she brought today? It would be so easy to just tie a nice little bow on it and say everything's going to work out just fine, but that's not the world we live in. We live in a world of pain and suffering. It's not an easy world. But it is God's world and he's working things out. And I just, I'm reminded through what she shared of a couple of things that Jesus is the only one that you can look to where the greatest pain and the greatest purpose was in the same place. And that was at the cross when he dealt with the sin and the brokenness of this whole world. And the empty tomb reminds us that he conquered the pain and suffering. And now he's alive to invite us to walk that place of pain with him. He is the God of pain, but he's also the God of purpose. And he's the God that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's what we hold on to. And he also is a God who decided that a church would be a pretty good thing. And that's why we're here for each other as well. There'll be those up front for prayer if you seek that. In the meantime, let's pray and release. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful message today, this deep reminder of who you are, the God of pain, but the God of purpose. You bring purpose out of the pain of this world. And even though you didn't will that pain, you had a plan beyond it, God. And we hold on to that. We clutch on to that dear cross for all the days, Lord. And even in the splinters, we're reminded that you carried one first. You walk with us. You will not leave us or forsake us. And there is a doorway leading to that other side when you wipe those tears away. We will hold on to that in the midst of the trials of this life. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.